just a little bit of time left, maybe 20 minutes or half an hour, and I want to leave time for whatever comments you want to make. So uh, instead of bringing up another koan, maybe I'll just make a few random points uh, for a few minutes and then see what uh, what you what's on your minds to bring up. First of all, somebody was uh, asking about my name because they saw on the flyer Zoketsu Norman Fisher, and the word Zoketsu always appears with my name, and often people think that that's a title. Like, how do you get to be a Zoketsu? Like, how many, <laughs> how many years do you have to study, and how many koans do you have to pass till you get to be a Zoketsu? But actually, it's not a title or an achievement. It's just my name. It's just a personal name. Uh, when you... Uh, receive lay or uh, priest ordination in the Zen lineages, you always get a, a, a Dharma name. And, it, and they usually give uh, a traditional name from built from Japanese characters. So it's the Japanese name, Zoketsu. And, and the translation of that, those two characters, is um, Elephant Cave. So that's the name, that I, that's my Dharma name, is Elephant Cave. It's just a personal name. Um, and uh, it's a strange name. Usually people get names like Perfect Enlightenment, uh, Dharma Forest, uh, you know, Awakened Moon. So I have this name, Elephant Cave. And uh, in a way, it was a little disappointing, like Elephant Cave, you know. So I, but, so I asked my teacher, you know, how come you gave me that name? What is the deep significance of this name? And basically, his response was something like, "Oh, I don't know. I was busy that day, and there's a lot of people, and I had the faintest <laughs> idea, the faintest idea, you know, why I can't even remember that that's your name, you know." So there was no uh, help from there. So I did some research on my own, and I found out a few things about the, the, the name, which, in fact, is a pretty unusual name. I've never met anybody. You, you sometimes meet people who have the same name. Uh, because, you know, there aren't that many names are kind of recycled and given. But um, two things I found out about it. One is that there's an old obscure story in the early suttas where, you know, the Buddha had a, an evil cousin, as you all know, you know, who was out to get him. Uh, 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 Devadatta, and one of Devadatta's, it's a little bit like the, the relationship between Buddha and Devadatta. It reminds me a little bit of the relationship between Roadrunner and Coyote. You know. <laughs> Roadrunner's all—I mean, Coyote's always kind of figuring out these clever and nefarious tricks to play on Roadrunner, and Roadrunner kind of doesn't do anything about it; just sort of innocently goes about his business, and the tricks always end up backfiring. You know, so this is what happened also with Buddha and Devadatta. And one time, Buddha was walking along, minding his own business, and Devadatta had this elaborate scheme of stampeding a herd of elephants. To, toward the Buddha, you know, to crush him, and because you know, Devadatta wanted to take over the Sangha and get rid of the Buddha, so this happened. The elephants were stampeding toward the Buddha, and the Buddha, you know, held up his hand in a gesture of peace, causing one of the elephants, the lead elephant, to go f flying through the air. You know, when when it saw the Buddha's hand, flying through the air and landing with a thump on the ground. Uh, producing an elephant cave. So that's one. 
so that's one uh, version. And the other, and the other one is uh, that in uh, southern Buddhist countries, the Sri Lanka, there are certain kinds of literal physical caves that have in the walls of the caves uh, some sort of mineral that is very attractive to elephants. They want to eat this mineral, so they go inside these caves. And they and they eat away the walls of the cave, making this making the cave larger, and also rubbing their flanks against the walls of the cave as they're doing this, making some really beautiful, spectacular caves with smooth walls. And elephants are auspicious animals in Asian countries. You know, they're they're wise and steady. So therefore, the caves fashioned by elephants were considered to be very auspicious places for meditation. So there are apparently many, cave, many elephant caves in Sri Lanka and other countries that are, you know, elephant cave, hermitage, elephant cave, temple, elephant cave, this elephant cave, that. And maybe they really were elephant caves and then others that got that name because they were considered to be good places for meditation. So that's maybe a little bit more reasonable. <laughs> but however you look at it, um, that's my name. Uh, whatever, whatever it means, that's my name. And uh, I, I, uh, I don't really have any title or use any title. Um, I've never uh, been much given to titles. But, uh, this, uh, but in Zen, there are a lot of titles, you know. And uh, in the Japanese, because the Japanese uh, Zen was the first, actually, I think more or less Japanese Zen was the first Buddhism exported to the West. I mean, not literally the first, but the first that got popular notice. So, so Japanese satori and koan and all these words, which are Japanese words, are actually very familiar, I think, in the English language, as is the, the title Roshi. I think it's pretty familiar. Everybody knows that title. You hear, you know, you read about it and so on. So that title uh, is um, used different ways in different lineages. In, uh, in the uh, lineages uh, that follow Robert Aitken's line of koan study, literally when you pass your koans, finish the curriculum, you're officially a Zen master and you receive the title of Roshi. However old you are, however experienced you are, if you're experienced enough to have passed all your koans and old enough to have done that, because it takes some time, then you're a Roshi. And so... Someone can, is, a, is a Roshi, and the term is almost like automatic when you finish the, the training. In, uh, in our tradition, um, the term is a little more vague. Almost everything about our tradition, actually, is a little vague, <laughs> to be honest with you. A little vague and obscure, and, and there's no rules, and you want everything to be, you know, like make sense, but it's all a little bit strange, obscure, and vague. And in our tradition, uh, there is no specific criteria for the use of the, of the terminology Roshi. Uh, in fact, in Japan, the term is very seldom used and it's never used by the person themselves. Uh, it's a kind of almost like a term of, in, of endearment by a very, used by students in relation to a very venerable, usually older, eminent uh, teacher. But uh, most Japanese Zen teachers who are, uh, you know, priests and teachers are usually called sensei, 
which is the same word that you'd use to call your kindergarten teacher or your tea teacher or whatever. You know, they're from, hmm? I think baseball are called sensei. Yeah, it just means teacher. You know, you know. So it's not. It's almost almost like Mister. You know, in a way or Mrs. But in in relation to a teacher. Um, so uh, at one time uh, in in the we have an organization of Soto Zen teachers in America. At one time we actually worked out criteria for who would be appropriate to to, to uh, address by the term Roshi, and we figured out that the person would be over 50 years of age. Uh, it would not make sense to call a younger person, even if they were very talented, you know, in the Dharma. Aroshi. So somebody who's over 50 years of age is an ordained Zen priest, has um, ordained other Zen priests, so has other priests under their charge, and has uh, officiated at an, at an official Zen Ango practice period at which there was a head monk and has presided over that ritual at least once. And those are, so that's hard. To do. There's not very many people who, who qualify for that, uh, to, to, re, to use that title. There are some in our lineage, and I would be one of them, but, uh, and there's maybe by now, I don't know, five or six or seven others, possibly. I don't know how many exactly, but, um, but, uh, and Suzuki Roshi was called Roshi, although at first he was called Reverend Suzuki for many years, but somebody figured out he should be called. Suzuki Roshi, and then his successor, Baker Roshi, although he was a younger man and had not done all that, he, he immediately inherited that title. So, uh, but it's not like, you know, we have the idea, you go to medical school, you, you're an MD. You finish law school, you're a lawyer. Uh, and it's a little more vague than that, I think, in our, in our tradition. Uh, Speaking of tradition, there was another thing I wanted to say that um, there is um, the virtue, I think, of there be, that there's a tradition at all uh, is that over a long period of time, many people through generations have been trying to develop a way of having a conversation about and creating a culture around these unspeakable, unknowable aspects of our human life. So the tradition doesn't necessarily produce wisdom or produce these experiences, but there's something about uh, relying on the wisdom of many people over many generations who've worked these things through that we can learn from it and we can, through our spiritual endeavors, not only experience our own lives uh, in a particular way, a deep way, but also do that in the context of a family and a way of looking at the world and a way of being in the world that's been developed over a period of time. So there's something very beautiful about that. In other words, on the one hand, there's our own experience, which is really crucial. Without it, there's nothing. On the other hand, there's a tradition. And you might say, well, what's the use of the tradition? The only thing that's important is the experience. And in a way, that's true. 
if there's no experience, as we all know, a tradition becomes something that's meaningless to us or dead to us. On the other hand, uh, the experience is, I think, much enhanced and much deep, more deeply appreciated when you receive it in the context of this conversation. And then that gives you a way of passing on that conversation over time. And we hope that our great spiritual traditions, and each one is a different kind of a conversation. You know, the, the conversation that happens in the Christian tradition has different elements in it from the conversation that happens in the Buddhist tradition or in the Zen tradition or the Vipassana tradition. Each one has its own characteristics and, and speaks to the human condition in a little bit different way. So I think our great religious traditions are valuable. And the older a tradition is, uh, the more depth I think it has over time but we have to keep it alive with our own experience we can't just rely on what somebody said hundreds of years ago um, and also uh, as I was saying in my first talk about koan study how traditions are always subject to abuse and trivialization and uh, there's a sense in which at some point you forget you don't see the forest for the trees. You know, you, 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 there's always a value in preserving tradition. And sometimes the value to preserve to tradition takes precedence, seems to take precedence over the experience that people are having. You take the, the, the poor Catholic Church, who in, in the effort to preserve the dignity of the tradition, harmed a lot of people with these sex abuse scandals and so on. And... and uh, naturally viewing the church as being the most important thing to preserve and protect, failing to see that individuals were being hurt and costing them a lot, you know, in the, in the church itself and costing them a lot, not only in, in money, of which there was a lot of money that it cost, but also in terms of their, their moral and spiritual legitimacy in, the, in this world. And, and I'm sure that the church and the church leaders have learned deeply from this and, but that's the kind of thing that happens in traditions, always, not just Catholic Church. So it's a tricky business, you know, trying to practice, uh, do spiritual practice in the context of a tradition with all the benefits and depth and confusion, not to mention violence, hatred, brutality, etc., that we can find in the history of all, uh, of all religions. So as I'm presenting to you today, you know, the Zen tradition and the koan tradition, I'm mindful you know, of all, all these uh, points. And I think I just wanted to share, share those thoughts with you. So that's it for me. I have nothing else to say unless you have something to say. And I'm happy to uh, have a little more dialogue in our last uh, 15 or 20 minutes or we could all go home you know, now. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's just as good. I don't think you're missing anything. I mean, the, 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 the traditional koans are constructed to 
uh, bring up aspects of the Zen teaching that the ancients deemed to be important, subtle points to see, particularly for people who were to be who were being trained to be adepts in Zen. So there were two things going on. One was a real personal transformation that we hope would happen. And the other is the development of a certain kind of expertise in this tradition. So with the traditional koans, both those things are going on. If you take a koan like who is suffering, there's only one important aspect to that koan, and that's your, your life and the transformation that you can find in seeing through that koan. Uh, so you may be, but maybe most of us are not interested in becoming, you know, Zen, Zen adepts and, you know, rising in the ecclesiastical hierarchy or something, so it doesn't matter so much. Actually, that very koan was a koan that I worked with for many years, actually. Uh, and the way I had it was, what is the cause of this suffering? And when I would experience suffering and anguish in myself, I would always work with that koan. And of course, Buddhism has very clear answers to what is the cause of suffering. You know, in the first noble truth, the four noble truths discuss this. But the koan isn't about, you know, saying the cause of suffering is desire, or the cause of suffering is misconception. It was about experientially cutting through the suffering, not by psychologizing it or, or understanding it in terms of my character or personality, but just sort of burning through the suffering. And it actually worked. And I became far less subject to moods and, you know, these kind of things that were besetting me through meditating on that koan for many, many years. It was a really wonderful very important uh, experience for me. So yeah, to meditate on what is the cause of this suffering, who is suffering, what is suffering, is can be a powerful practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First him, and then. Um, sorry, I don't know your names. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't remember what that book says, but I don't. I don't think. I don't think I'd specifically refer to it in that book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, trying to clarify about everyday form, is the idea um, just to watch the experience and the experience sort of dissolves the question for you? Is that the idea? Is the idea that? An answer might pop into your mind that is an insight, and you can then work with the insight in everyday life so that the question is resolved. Mm. Or is it either or? And if, if it's about an answer popping in my mind, when can I trust that answer? Or do I keep asking it until mm. the change? Well, uh, it depends. A lot of the way that I would respond to you depends on your situation. Uh, whether or not you have some teacher that you can work with and bring these things to. And, and if not, then uh, what, I, what I would say is, um, first of all, uh, it's not a matter of watching the feeling or what's arising. Uh, koan practice isn't observing or watching, it's becoming. It's becoming so intimate with the feeling that there is no watching it or observing it and studying it. There's more the sense of the whole universe of consciousness is filled with this that I'm listening to or you know, working with. 
There's nothing but this. It is the question. That's the spirit, getting closer, more and more intimate, so that there's no feeling of observing an external object or an observer looking at something, but just the thing itself absorbing everything. And then uh, I think that you, what you're looking for is not an a- answer that pops into your head, although various useful things may pop into your head, and there's, there's no problem with that, that you should ignore that or something like that. But, but more the question is to experientially move through, almost like burning, physically burning through something that is a conceptual misunderstanding that's causing us to, to suffer or habitually view something in the same way. Just sort of like completely getting so close to this and that you come through the other side of it. And like I say, along the way, there may be various insights that you have and those are valuable, but those are not really the point. And it would be a mistake to get too excited about them because then you'd get sidetracked. So you appreciate them. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that nice? You know? And I make use of that and so on, but still, there's no end to this. I've never finished. I haven't figured something out here. Uh, there's always more. And then I think uh, you would find that you'd have to figure out for yourself the difference between... I don't have enough determination, I don't have enough persistence, and I'm really finished with this. And this would be uh, something in the absence of a teacher who might, you might work through with this, something you'd have to determine yourself. Because it does happen, that, as it happened for me with that koan, it wasn't like I had some breakthrough, I figured out the cause of suffering. It was like I burned through with that question and I saw that I didn't need to work with that question anymore and then there was something else to work with. So that's what I would say if you're going to try and be very, uh, you know, um, flexible and gentle with yourself. Don't make this into a big, too, too big a deal, you know, too specific a thing. Uh, become, you could, you could become, this is the danger. That's why it's use, so useful to have a teacher because you don't want to become obsessed or, you know, crazy with this, you know, thing. So just be gentle and flexible uh, with some determination, but at the same time, practical groundedness here so that you don't go too far off the deep end. Uh, And if you do, uh, let me know. (laughs) I don't want to do anybody harm here, so I hope I haven't uh, misled anybody. And and, and if so, sorry. Yeah. Um, Seems like the the colon work is inner work a lot. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you and then, after a certain amount of that, you take you stand from your you take your, you take yeah. your stand and move out into the world. And so it seems like it's the, it's the moving out into the world that gives you the new data. And the new, mm. uh, so I just wanted yeah. to have you say a little more about that. Yeah. Well, see, I wouldn't look at it that way myself. One of the points of the koan work is that just as uh, with uh, the oak tree in the courtyard, where the point there is that they're, you know, in the full dialogue, is I'm not teaching you about outside things. The oak tree in the courtyard is not outside, it's inside and outside. So that the koan work, in a way, it, yes, conventionally speaking, it's inner work, but not really, because the koan is manifesting all the time. When I get up from my seat, the koan is right there in my interactions with others, in my seeing and hearing and feeling and tasting. 
the truth of the matter is that there is that part of our suffering is direct the feeling that we have that there's inner and outer. There actually isn't inner and outer, and, and, and to understand that truly and experientially is one of the liberations that koan study provides. So, uh, because, you know, um, we're intimate with our inner life. We, f- we can feel safe to some extent in our inner life, but we're just the same in the world. We're intimate and safe in the world, and for us to recognize that is part of the process. So, ultimately, the koan is there in your activity, in your relationships, everywhere in your life. You know, in Zen, as I say, usually there's an atmosphere constructed that make it easier to see, makes it easier to see that when you're doing simple work and spending a lot of time in silence. Uh, in our lives, it may be more, practically speaking, more difficult to see that, but not impossible. Yeah. Well, I appreciate spending the day with you all. Thank you for coming, and thanks to the Sati Center for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I always like coming down here and uh, seeing who shows up and chatting for a while. And um, thank you also in advance for your uh, contributions, both to the Sati Center and to myself. Uh, usually, it's you don't talk about this. It's not, teachers don't say this, but but the truth is that um, your support of me keeps me going, feeds me, and uh, helps me to survive. And so I am grateful for that. Thank you very much.